Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we speak with the change agents making Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the world a more resilient place. I'm your chief philanthropod, Jesse Orch. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. And today our guest is Laura Bells, executive director of the Take Control Initiative and one of the founders of the immensely popular Facebook group, Save Our State, which is helping people organize around making Oklahoma safer during this COVID-19 pandemic we are currently in. We talked to Laura about all things COVID-19, the dichotomy between the horror of the epidemic and the hope of the innovations fighting the fallout, how to get involved to make Oklahoma safer, and why we should all be writing opinion pieces. Enjoy the episode. We are very excited to have a quasi-special episode of Pod for Good today. Our, our guest is Laura Bellis, who normally spends her time as the executive director of the Take Control Initiative, but in her spare time has been leading a movement to get our state of Oklahoma into a sort of proper place to fight COVID-19. Hi, Laura, how are you doing today? Oh, you know, the stock answer is good, all things considering. You have to say the whole thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I've been saying all things considering a lot recently. As I told you before we started recording, we've been wanting to talk to you about the Take Control Initiative for a while now, because Chris and I, as uh, two uh, cisgendered uh, men who don't have kids, seem to be obsessed with teen pregnancy in Oklahoma. Mm. Um, <laughs> and But in the good way, not in the weird way. Sounds, yeah, wrong. You're not sounds wrong every time you say that. It, yeah. do, it does sound wrong, but I like saying it. So, But in this time we're living in, it is we are recording on April 5th, 14th. Uh, this episode will be released April 16th, so this will be a very fast turnaround. But it has been, I don't know, a month, six weeks of sort of the overwhelming news stream and life-changing uh, event that is COVID-19. And, you know, we are in a state where normally Oklahomans like to keep their government as far away from them as possible. And this is one of the situations where we need it more than ever. And so I've been trying to keep up with all the news. And even though I'm working from home all the time now, as I have been for a while, it is still incredibly hard to know everything that's going on. So could you give us like a rundown of like right now, where are we as far as fighting COVID-19 in Oklahoma? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> territory to cover. So I will say we are one of seven states that do not have a statewide stay at home or shelter in place order. Those are fairly synonymous policy wise. We have a quote unquote safer at home order that um, basically suggests that people who are over 65 or immunocompromised or have certain pre-existing conditions should stay at home and everyone else should socially distance. But more than that, there's not enforcement, not a lot of clarity. And then also, while we do have hypothetically only essential businesses open, the list is very broad. And almost immediately after issuing a very broad list, the um, governor's office created a form where you could apply for your business to be considered essential. And they were just given out exemptions left and right. So you have also just a lot of businesses open. Um, and then outside of that piece, we also have, and this is kind of what brought me into being extra concerned for Oklahoma in this, um, you know, our healthcare infrastructure is pretty fragmented, under-resourced. We've had so many rural hospitals closed over the last 30 plus years. Um, and so going into this, we were already, right, not on super even footing um, compared to other states. 
And now when we get into what coronavirus looks like in our health systems, right, we have at minimum 14% of Oklahomans are uninsured. That's probably higher now that we have so much more unemployment. Uh, And then you have hypothetically our governor saying, okay, there's all of this testing available. You can go get it. But people are pretty frequently being turned away. And even though we have a lot of sites um, for testing and then private labs and different labs that we're contracting with across the state. A lot of materials are conceptually missing or there's just gaps. We hear from a lot of doctors, they don't have swabs to do the test. So it's just a lot of patchwork things happening. And since the governor hasn't done any statewide order that's for everyone, you see different cities and counties taking on their own measures. So it's just an extremely patchwork response, both when it comes to what's happening across the state for stay at home or safer at home orders, and then also what it looks like for testing and access to um, just treatment and care, basically. I remember when, you know, Tulsa initiated its sort of stay at home order, and it took another week for Broken Arrow to do that. And I was like, guys, people like, you know, I was driving out to see my dad and my parents-in-law in Broken Arrow multiple times that week. And I'm like, why Broken Arrow should not be acting like everything's normal right now. Like well, we're, yeah. we're, they're right next to each other. Yeah. Well, and that's, um, you know, there's been a lot of metaphors out there that having one area do a full shelter in place or stay at home order. And another nod is the whole um, like, you know, peeing in a swimming pool, like having a peeing section in a swimming pool or having a smoking section in a restaurant, which is accurate. Well, and part of, when I saw other states starting to enact statewide shelter in place and stay at home orders, and part of why Nate Morris and I made that Save Our State Facebook group was just when we were talking, going, is our state going to actually do this, knowing how under-resourced our healthcare infrastructure is and how many people have pre-existing conditions that would make them extra at risk, right? We rank high in so many healthcare things you don't want to rank high in. Seeing that and then thinking about how for each urban center that might have a somewhat good amount of healthcare resource and access, you have all of our rural communities surrounding it who, when their systems and health centers that may or may not be super equipped in the first place, when they get overloaded, all of those folks have to come to our urban centers for care. And so thinking about how we're all that mutually accountable and need all of us to really be in it together, including with our actions and policies, that's what made us start that Facebook group because we could just you, know, you can foresee, well, yeah, viruses don't acknowledge a county line or municipal line or whatever. So we're all in this together, whether people want to admit it or not. Well, and it also, se- sorry, I was just going to say, it seems that creating a, a safer in place or whatever safer at home order is especially dangerous because as we get more data, we learn that it's not as simple as only people over 65 or only people with certain pre-existing conditions are at risk. We're seeing more and more people, younger, healthier people who are be, who are suffering from the disease and in cases dying. Yeah. Well, and it's just one that actually even just the name safer at home, it confuses people. People are literally just confused by the policy and aren't always even clear. Wait, what do we have in place? It sounds similar to other states, but I'm not sure. So one is just confusing and has been mismessaged left and right. And that's dangerous unto itself because people don't know what they should or shouldn't do and may accidentally make someone sick or other things without even meaning to because they didn't know what the policy was, right? And then two, per your point, we're seeing um, that there's 
one, more young people than people realize getting sick. Um, I know there's a hospital in Philadelphia where at a certain point, almost half of their hospitalized patients were under 40. And then also um, Iceland, who's done a lot more testing than we have in both Oklahoma and the country, they've um, found that of the people who've tested positive, half has, about half have been asymptomatic, which means that a lot of people are walking around potentially that are infecting others who may end up being really critical cases, and those folks don't even know they have it, which, of course, with our testing limitations, we're not even close to really being able to acknowledge exactly what our community level of cases look like. I mean, that's what what frustrates me the most about this is that, you know, and again, like not to go over the timeline of this, but, you know, the World Health Organization had a test that worked, that America said no to, developed their own test which didn't work at first, which they then had to go back and fix. If we were all able to get a test and like, it's the, there's the fear of the coronavirus as a thing. And then there's the fear that we have it and don't know it because we can't get tests. And I feel like that pressure is going to keep building on people until, you know, my concern is that, especially here in Oklahoma, people just like say, you know, it and just start going back to their regular lives and not being tested and not knowing. Well, there's that rally or whatever to reopen the state in – what is that? Is that this weekend? Oh, no, it's Wednesday, I believe. The drive Wednesday. rally. Okay. That one. Or, yes. Um, yes. Yeah. I think uh. what's especially charming about that, and I think I just saw a news story that pointed this out, they're going to practice social distancing during the rally while also <laughs> rallying to stop doing that. And to me, it says one of two things. Either one, you're um, – saying that you're not willing to personally take the risk that you would like all of these workers to start doing right away. Or two, you don't want to get in legal trouble to really put yourself out there on this because you actually know that you're not willing to deal with those consequences and that you'd probably also be putting law enforcement at risk for having to interact with you. So all around, I will just call it what it is. It's an incredibly stupid effort. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. And at best, it's stupid. At worst, it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, stupidly dangerous. And it really does. A lot of that does come from leadership. You know, if our if it if it appears our our governor is not taking this serious, mm-hmm. and if it appears uh, not to get too political, our president isn't taking this too seriously, then a lot of the people won't take it too seriously. I mean, I get frustrated if I do have to run to the store. I'm wearing a mask. I see a lot of people wearing a mask. And then I see a group of people, and frankly, often older people who are not wearing masks. And I want to ask them, you know, why are why is everybody taking these, you know, precautions to help someone who may be in a vulnerable population when those same people aren't willing to, to, to take the same precautions? Yeah, well, and... I, I think what you said is exactly right around, I, I actually, I'll quote Olivia Pope from Scandal, the fish rots from the head with things like that. Per your point, people take cues from leadership. And when leadership initially, especially, yeah, our governor, I'll zero in on that as a closer proximal locus of control for this than looking federally. But yeah, when our governor initially, you know, had that photo of himself at a restaurant and then afterwards was like, we'll continue dining out. Um, and then recently just had a haircut and you know, all of these other pieces, even as he's definitely taken a more serious tone, he keeps doing things or um, kind of engaging in weird policy battles, like with our legislature right now about rainy day funds and making a budget cut that 
yeah, do show that he might not be taking this very seriously. And people take cues, especially if, you know, you voted for this person, you thought that they had a good head on their shoulders about things, you kind of take cues, and then that does affect your behavior. And especially also just considering that across our state, and this isn't that people, this is not to say whatsoever that people are stupid by any means, more so to just say that due to cuts we've had to education over time, both for just literal literacy and then data and health literacy, our state doesn't have high levels of a lot of those things. Could people learn? Absolutely. But have been, have people been afforded the opportunity to learn a lot of that in a really cohesive way? No. And so showing people all these different predictive models and, you know, all of these different numbers and data points and trying to understand what it means or doesn't mean and how it applies to your life or not. People have been left to really sort through that themselves because leadership hasn't made it very clear or straightforward. And again, then people are just confused. And I believe most people are trying their best and then they just don't actually know what the right protocol is a lot of the time. Well, and and when when leaders and certain sections of the media uh, tell people for years that there are certain types of science they can't trust, you know, whether it's climate science, evolutionary science, whatever, it's hard for them to suddenly think, oh, well, here's some science that I should trust when they're telling me something I don't want to hear. Yep. It's yeah, yeah. I think that's 100%. Yeah, the, the, yeah there's, there's there's no follow up to that. that that's true. And that is, that is the problem. <laughs> like I'm trying to even figure out because like it feels like the rules, the rules keep changing you know, for what we're supposed to be doing. Like for a while it was like, okay, wear gloves, but you don't need to wear a mask. Now it's like wear a mask, wear gloves, but be careful with the gloves because they can also get coronavirus. So keep changing out the gloves. And then it's like, well, how long can you wear a mask? Can you clean a mask? All these sorts of things. And, you know, I currently do not have health insurance. And so only recently have, have I connected in my brain the problems with that and me going out you know, to shop for things for fa- other family members who are more at risk. Like my risk is worse in the sense because I do not have health insurance and that'd be bad. Yeah. Well, and that's one of those huge things where, and again, that came from my both lived experience as a person, but then also the work that I do that largely is serving an underinsured and uninsured population um, was just knowing what those just bills and access points could look like we have probably have so many people who will one, if they did go get testing, they might struggle to be able to actually get it as we know. But two, even if they did, yeah, a lot of insurers have waived the cost of tests and yeah, there's some like lower price tests or things like that, but you might be screened or tested for a variety of other things as well that will not have the cost waived. Um, treatment isn't necessarily waived. And then of course, that's for people with insurance and then for people without insurance, and especially if you get into a treatment space or end up hospitalized, yeah, that's um, most people are really just one hospital bill away from abject poverty, especially yeah. in Oklahoma. And I think now that's never been more glaringly true. And it's just been really kind of in some ways scary to see that we haven't found a policy way to resolve that. And in the middle of this right now, as um, all of this is happening, the governor's proposing a Medicaid plan that comes with work requirements. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I'm really getting tired of the idea that there's a core of people in this country who believe like nothing should be given for free. There, this, the, the safety net is not an actual net. It's like, I don't even know what the metaphor would be. Like, and I remember we had, I think we had a conversation on Facebook about Oklahoma's unemployment website and how old it is. I was truly amazed how well it worked for me a year ago. 
But that, that's because the amount of people applying and filling out the thing every week was, you know, tiny in comparison to what it is now. And, you know, multiple states are having problems because none of them have, have spent any money updating their unemployment, right? Like this pandemic shows all of the holes that America hasn't been patching over the past 30 years. And I hope that we have a conversation once this is over about actually fixing those instead of just continually trying to patch them up as we go along. Yeah. Well, and I would even change metaphors there because it's not even holes. I would actually call them more like gashes because they were intentional Mm. wounds that have been made through policies starting, I mean, going back for decades, but when you really look at what we had at a certain point and then really in the seventies and from there, that's when we really started slashing safety net that did exist. And so at this point, it's like we have had policies that created these, yeah, like gashes and wounds to the safety net. And right now it's just becoming so apparent why those gashes should have never been made. Um, And what I think is really fascinating to watch is as people, especially across, and I've gotten to see it through this Facebook group where you have, um, you know, it's almost 54,000 people from all over Oklahoma from a lot of different political um, ideologies and spectrums who uh, on this page, trust me, people agree on very, very little besides that they want the governor to do more. But it's been really fascinating to watch people who have potentially in the past really advocated against certain policies that they're now advocating for because the need in this one crystallizing moment has become much more proximal and apparent to people that it may never have been so visible to in the past. My worry during all this time is that the people who are always the first to hurt in situations like this and, you know, economic downturns in, you know, weather emergencies are the, the people who don't have other people to advocate for them, who don't have money, who don't, do not have power. And so how is, how is take, you know, the take control initiative trying, you know, keeping attention on people who needed help before this, who still need help now? Yeah, we've um this it's actually been really interesting to see how there are certain things that have always been on the horizon when it comes to healthcare innovation, especially through telehealth and telemedicine, right? Like virtual virtual visits and we'd always had tabs on how much more access that could provide to people, especially given transportation barriers and things like that both in our community and across the state and it's been amazing to see how rapidly the health centers we work with and then just partners and people we talk to across the country have kicked into gear with, all right, here's how we make telehealth happen. And not just that, here's how we make it happen. And then if someone actually does need to come in or come pick up a prescription, or we need to get their blood pressure somehow, here's a way we can do that almost completely contact free and get someone's services. I think what we've found in supporting our clinics with that, and then also just seeing how rapidly people come up with those things is that and this always amazes me about healthcare. No matter how under-resourced and how patchworked it is, most times someone who's trying to get care, once you're actually engaging with that health center or healthcare provider, something's going to happen for you. And the clinics we work with here in Tulsa are so committed to doing that. And we've already seen them be so innovative. So for Take Control's purposes, which we're focused on access to contraception and removing barriers there, which we acknowledge removing barriers to birth control and clinical services for birth control also removes barriers to many other health services too. We've just really focused on how can we source and help support telehealth? Is it through helping provide the technology they need, sorting through vendors, things like that? And then we're also, um, we've never 
really gotten into working directly with a pharmacy to mail prescriptions, but we're um, in a space where we're almost kind of done figuring out a pharmacy to work with so we can start just getting things to people's homes so they can have a telehealth visit and then get the method they've selected mailed to them. Um, so yeah, we're just navigating what does this look like if people can't come directly into a health center in the same way and how do we ensure people can still get birth control? And I thought we'd be much more stymied than we have been there are a lot of really fascinating solutions happening nationally. Well, and it seems like a lot of these innovations are things that either already existed and were not freely accessible or are new things that have been developed and frankly, things that probably should have existed and should have been available before this happened. And that's been fascinating to see. And what of those do you, what are some of those things that you think will continue that you'll be able to utilize after everything sort of quote unquote goes back to normal? I totally agree with you around. These are things that were kind of there anyway. And now it's just this, you know, really tragic situation that provides us the opportunity, but the opportunity is a good one for some of these innovations that really remove barriers to access. And really telehealth overall and just being able to do virtual visits will absolutely sustain after this and can be huge for a few reasons. One is that there's a lot of potential um, cost savings for the patient side of things. For instance, right, for people to access healthcare, generally you'd have to get a ride, pay for gas, you know, some of those things, and also very likely pay for childcare as well. And if you're doing a virtual visit, you're kind of removing a bunch of those factors. And you might also be a little more flexible around if you had to go take off of work, right? And maybe not get PTO either for it to go get to that appointment. Now that's also potentially off the table. So you have all of these things that actually really, really, really benefit the people you're seeking to serve by just being able to do it virtually and remotely. Um, And then on the health center side of things, what the opportunity has looked like is our Medicaid office was just starting to look at reimbursing for telehealth and telemedicine services. And that was part of the barrier was, okay, even if a health center wanted to, how can they ensure that they get paid for delivering those services? You know, how do they code for it? How do they bill for it? And now we're seeing um, insurers and Medicaid and Medicare and through CMS federally, like rapidly kick into gear with, okay, here's how you get paid to do this. We'll figure it out right now. And that absolutely is going to sustain past this point because it really is, especially for rural communities, an optimal way to get someone to care no matter how far away they live from that health center site. Well, and beyond the cost saving side of it and the time savings, you know, I'll say cross contamination at hospitals isn't new. You know, Mm -hmm. this is something that has highlighted it, but it's not unusual for people to go to hospitals for treatment and catch something else. So having opportunities to allow people to get their health treatment they need in a way that keeps them healthier, like Teladoc or something similar, seems like something you know we should have been embracing anyways. That's absolutely true. I think it is. It's just one of those, as far as barrier removal and then just like safety measures and precautions, there's just so many opportunities within, again, this really horrific context and circumstance to improve upon a lot of these things and give people um, better access to care. And yeah, the circumstance that we're in where we're kind of developing and really quickly implementing these solutions is 
you the exact opposite of ideal again it's really like one of those post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. nightmare kind of situations but you can see how the solutions we're making now will absolutely sustain and make people's lives better down the line which that's just been it's been exciting for our purposes especially as a nonprofit that works but like bridging community and health center spaces to sit in this position in this moment and just figure out how do we remove barriers especially now has been a really phenomenal opportunity that it's just been really cool to see with both our health centers and our community facing partners, people just really embracing technology and virtual options that people had been kind of resistant or hesitant about or scared of for a long time. Well, and and that's, for me, it's been kind of an interesting uh, psychological study, not just of everyone else, but even of myself, the way you know, I have to kind of compartmentalize things because on one hand, thinking of all the people who are getting sick, all the people dying, all the, you know, damage and destruction to people, economies, infrastructure. And then the other part of me that is looking at all the interesting innovations, even small things like, you know, breweries delivering beer and thinking, huh, I wonder how much of that stuff will keep going. And it's just, kind of like a battle within myself think trying to remember all the bad stuff and the good stuff together and almost rational you know uh rationalize those two things together yeah i think it's i think you're right it's really hard when you're faced with what feels like these diametric oppositions of this is truly terrible and is actively harming people on like, you know, every second of every day right now, paired with here are all these opportunities for change. I um, I saw an article kind of as this was really starting to unfold in our country that was talking about how some of the, you know, greatest social shifts and kind of moments where things become more equitable in, throughout history across societies have been stemming from pandemic and plague and moments like this where society has to make a choice to pivot to more equitably provide resources to people in the face of crises like this. And so it's, it's weird to kind of see that like really almost dim silver lining that you can see getting brighter throughout this with those opportunities while also knowing that all of that's being born out of a lot of destruction and tragedy, which is immensely challenging to reconcile on a regular basis. I mean, I hope this points out to America, like how much better our internet needs to be. Uh. <laughs> well, and that's, yeah. Oh my God. Well, and I know, I hope we get free Wi-Fi citywide because right now all of these solutions yes. that we're coming up with are so great. If you have Wi-Fi, that's one thing we're looking at is um, helping support clinics in either getting new hotspots or signal boosters so that their Wi-Fi extends into the parking lot. So people could at least have a virtual visit being parked in that parking lot. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I hope like, you know, of, of the many good things I hope may, may become out of this, the one, the, the fight over letting cities build their own uh, internet infrastructure. I hope we can get over that, uh, you know, cable company lobbyist hump of letting cities build their own internet. Cause it's, it truly is a utility now. It's something everybody needs and nothing has made that more clear than this right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say both right. internet and smartphones. That to me is yes. the one other, like, we're definitely all in that conversation space of the internet's a public utility. Everyone literally right now very, very much needs it. And then you have this one other piece, especially as we get into um, telemedicine and health options is it really, really, really could make a huge difference in people's lives if they also then had a smartphone to go with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, because I know that the TPS is turning their buses into Wi-Fi spots um, for you know students who don't have internet. And then the second part is they have to go to their schools like at a I think a very specific time to pick up their Chromebook that the schools have. And it just points out like there's two things that you know everyone's like, oh, well, we'll do online education. Well, that only works if you have internet and a computer. And a lot of TPS mm-hmm. students do not do not have one or the other. Yeah, it's been fascinating. As a former teacher who taught um, at a Title I school here in Tulsa for five years, what's been fascinating is my husband works at a private school here and seeing what Mm. their virtual learning and how well resourced it is looks like compared to what I'm seeing my former teaching colleagues and you know student and their students and their families what that looks like just the disparity there has been really jarring to watch play out in real time. Yeah. It's, I mean, just, it was another reminder of, you know, the haves and the have nots in situations like this. So correct me if I'm wrong, like for Oklahoma, this is the week, right? This is the sort of tipping point numbers week. Yeah. Where... Well, this gets into models and projections, um, which look at a lot of lately. Um, so according to projections from what the state's looking at, which has to do with the IHME model layered with, um, different epidemiologists, and I think some of like the State Department's numbers and things like that, they're looking at the 21st as this like initial peak date, and we're kind of gearing up for that moment. There are also other projections. I want to say ones I've seen through, maybe it was John Hopkins or COVID Act Now, that point towards a little bit later in April, or maybe we have another wave in early May. We It's basically like we know our numbers are going to grow. Um, they've been doubling every four to five days. And then over the past like two or three days, it was looking like maybe our hospitalizations and deaths were doubling more like every five to six days. But we know that's not going to hold. But what's tough is we don't have enough testing to make really informed predictive models. Granted, we can use hospitalizations and deaths, which are very concrete. We can measure those. We can then use those kind of as a proxy to guess how many cases are out there in our community and what spread looks like, but it's still really challenging. And so we're seeing some projections happening from like the state versus different communities and then from other just national resources, seeing others. And then at the end of the day, you have to remind everyone that these are just projections and they're all being factored in different ways and taking into account different numbers. But what we do know is that we are definitely projecting a peak, at least for this wave for, yeah, the end of this month, the beginning of May. Um, and we, in some ways may not really know until we're in it. Well, yeah. And that's the thing I, it frustrates me so much when people are like, when, you know, a projection was made like a month ago about how bad this was going to be. And, uh, you know, a month later, the numbers are not as bad. And people are like, see, we shouldn't have freaked out. And I'm like, no, that's not how this works. Like, <laughs> I know it's fascinating that that's uh, how how people read it, not thinking, hey, maybe all this uh, social distancing and staying at home is having a positive effect. No, no. It's that we overreacted yeah. to the, yeah. the And that's... I just keep going back to my current patron saint of coronavirus, um, Dr. Fauci, on this one around yeah. <laughs> you, when you see measures you're taking working, you know, he made that point. It's not the time you're t- it's not the time to take your foot off the brake. You have to hit the accelerator because it's working. Yeah. But you're right. Instead, you have and 
really the disservice that we've been done by messages from certain leadership and then also certain um, news agencies. Instead, people just go, oh, well, I already thought this might be a hoax. And then that these numbers weren't as high as they initially were projected. Well, that confirms it for me. Instead of thinking, oh, the measures we took are working and we need to keep them up. It's that confirmation bias. I think that's really coming into play when you see people, you know, reach that conclusion and decide to go have a drive by rally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like <laughs> like now I look back at what I was doing a month ago and I'm like horrified that I did those things and the way I did them, like going to Costco without gloves, right? Or mm-hmm. getting gas, like all these things. And now I'm like, you know, I don't, people don't like living in fear, obviously. Fear is very effective, but it's almost like I still don't have a clear answer on like, for example, like things I buy at the grocery store. Do I need to clean those things? It seems to be the answer is no. Mm-hmm. My dad, on the other hand, has a little quarantine area of his garage where he puts all of his groceries for like 24 hours before he brings them hopefully, into the house. Hopefully not the refrigerated ones. No, the refrigerated ones he puts in the refrigerator. Um, <laughs> I've seen so many different issues and guidelines. And while this gets into, especially and I see this happen in this Facebook group where you know people get really irritable and angry and pick fights with each other over different small things. But it's mostly because people are angry and afraid, which is understandable. But also a lot of it's the stress of moral decision-making fatigue. Mm-hmm. Things mm-hmm. to be like this thoughtless thing you just did or were just the smallest quick decision you might make. Now you're weighing out literally, if I do this or don't do this right, could it kill me? And then if I choose to do this this way or that way, will it hurt someone else, right? And then you're weighing out, should I go or should I like get someone else to go? What is the moral implication of that? And is that just because I can afford to pay someone else like through Shipped or Instacart to go do this? What are my ethical considerations there? And suddenly you're just in these constant uh, like kind of moral and ethical spirals trying to figure out what will do the least harm. And it's just really, really hard and stressful to navigate that. And you see people then expressing that anger and fear and frustration in all sorts of ways, especially on the internet, because that's the thing we have right now Mm -hmm. to really put out there with each other. Well, and even on the small things, like me getting upset that Hop Jam and Mayfest and Tulsa Tough are are canceled because they're events I love. And then the next second thinking, why am I caring about an event when other people are dying? And then you start to, you know, have, have that sort of moral thought process of, you know, am I allowed to be upset about these small things when other people are dealing with big things? And then, you know, you, you feel some amount of either depression or, you know, recrimination towards yourself about, about these, even the smallest thing. Mm-hmm. No, that's. Yeah, I believe that's called. I believe that's called privilege, Chris. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Also, like these weird little mini grieving, yeah, or moments with each of those. Because I mean, I think everyone across socioeconomic spectrums and their current circumstances comes across those small moments where that thing you would usually do or something you were looking forward to or maybe a favorite snack that you would usually go get if we're bringing up my like lime popsicle pain point personally. Like you just have that small <laughs> moment where it's like this small little loss every time you realize that it's not accessible to you or going to happen right now. And I think everyone just keeps having to, you know, it's like this constant wave that rolls past that you have to come to terms with each new little thing that used to be a given or at least Mm -hmm. one. And then when you realize that the things and the ground and everything that was 
seem so firmly under you isn't. It's just you're just in that constant state of stress and fear, even if you're like handling it in a seemingly really level way. With the work I'm doing with uh, the Tesla Response Task Force and other things, it made me realize that as someone who's been trying to start their own business for the last four months, I was already in this panicked mental state that like one one customer leaving me would like lead me back to unemployment, which I'm no longer qualified for. And like, how would I pay my rent? I've been worried about that for months now. And so I've, I think I've been able to compartmentalize that while I've been helping other people who are just now having to worry about that. And then also realizing how many small businesses help keep Tulsa running and how many people are dependent, depending on companies for like their health insurance or their, or for their, you know, for their paychecks that or those companies themselves couldn't last more than, you know, two, four, six weeks before they ran out of money. Like I, I didn't realize how precarious almost everything was. And yeah. would, uh, the fragility, we, we have a very fragile economy and, I think it's been that way for a long time. It's just, it was easy to not notice, right? Until there are significant stressors like this, or when the housing market crashed in 08, when you're just, when you keep adding new money to it over and over again, you don't see how fragile it is. And that's what this is showing us that our economy is very fragile. Our infrastructure is very fragile and it's very scary to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And I think I've read, I've seen plenty of articles about this, but there are going to be some very powerful forces that try to get us to forget about how fragile everything is and try really hard to get us to go back to normal and pretend like none of this happened. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest, I'm really concerned about wages and workers. A lot of the stories we see on the Save Our State page, especially um, from people who are in a business that's currently still open or somehow considered essential, whether it is or not, which is a whole big debate, of course. But a lot of these people are saying, hey, I am having this experience in my setting. They're not following health safety protocols. We hear from people that they're being offered money if they're sick at home to just come back, including someone who is diagnosed as a positive case of coronavirus, um, oh, come on. In a rural area that's like very touristy as well. Um, so we, we just keep hearing stories and seeing them frequently from workers going, I am so scared right now that one, I'm in my work setting. I think someone's sick and nothing's being done. We have no protective anything. We're in close quarters, all of this stuff. And they're so, so scared or two that they're in a spot where they're working remotely, but it's tenuous and it's just one quick move from the governor and then they're back in their work setting. And whether it's like, you know, a dental hygienist or, you know, someone in another industry, they're like, I am so scared because if I don't go, that's my job and I need it. And they're terrified and they share those stories really frequently. Or we'll also have people, you know, talk about that company or business and that experience. And then maybe a day or two later, um, a representative from that company or the company's page itself will try to come into this Facebook group. And we, you know, people are really, really afraid for their jobs. And so, you know, they'll try to find ways to share anonymously. But all this is to say from seeing so many stories from Oklahomans across the state in various industries, just constantly expressing that fear of how their jobs mistreating them or unsafe but they don't feel like they have a choice but to go if it comes down to it or they are actively having to go right now. I just hope that the movement that can come out of being put in that position, if people realize that they can really 
you know, organize and gather um, that they could push for a lot when it comes to wages and workers' rights. And I hope we could maybe see a return of union strength as well. Yeah, I mean, like, again, like, you know, as a liberal Jewish person, like, I have dreams of what the world could look like after this. And I know I'll be disappointed, uh, as I normally am. But I do think this has shown a lot of people who maybe who need, you know, to show empathy towards something needed to affect them a little closer to the universe in which they live. I think this has shown like why um, other democracies have, you know, a national healthcare service, why they have wages that are higher than the United States and why maybe some things are a little harder to do because the countries are trying to take care of more people at, you know, at more times. And I hope we can ha- actually have conversations about this, you know, what once we're done panicking over this. Yeah, me too. Uh, I hope, yeah, that's, of course, one of my other hopes on the other side as well is, you know, what if we started believing that healthcare is a human right, right? Like, what if we were to build that reality in which we show that we acknowledge that health is wealth and that you need to be able to be healthy, both physically and mentally, to actually participate in opportunity and economy and all of those things. And we actually prioritize that instead of having that be completely flipped where it's, if you don't work, then we won't feed you, house you, or give you care. I'm really hoping that this is the chance to flip that script. Well, and and beyond just the... um you know, offering health insurance, health care, it's, it's building up our, our infrastructure, right? Because that's as big of a piece of it is the fact that we're seeing that the cuts to our healthcare infrastructure have been so drastic over the last several decades that we can't deal with this type of care and these type of needs. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's both cuts and then just how fragmented and privatized everything is. I, it creates, you know, we're, we're seeing those very real challenges right now when, you know, our state, um, we have a variety of private hospitals and I can only think of like two public ones off the top of my head. Um, and then you have your array of, um, you know, federally qualified health centers, health departments, a lot of private health centers. Um, and then when you add to that all these different insurers, and then what we're seeing right now for what it looks like with tests and testing equipment and labs, all of that is um, fragmented across all these different, um, you know, entities that have been contracted with by the state, which, I mean, it's good because then we have access to these things that we may not have been provided otherwise through the federal government. But then what it means, and you see this reflected when the data is reported, is everything, you know, it gets self-reported by all these different centers and sites with various discrepancies, yeah, to one place, but then it's the data kind of is lagging. And yeah, it has some discrepancies. Some people may or may not report on demographics. They may or may not consistently report on something else. Again, you're relying on all these different vendors and contractors to get that information to you. There's a lot of breakdown there and that's just a data reporting. So when you think about that rippling out across all of these different entities that are part of our healthcare system, it just it's kind of actually mind boggling to me that people get served at all, but somehow currently they do. Um, not to the degree people need and deserve, though. It could be so much better if it was a much more cohesive effort. Well, and I think that's why it's been, you know, almost miraculous to see the the work being put in by the healthcare providers, the doctors, the nurses, the people in the hospitals, what they're having to put up with and still being able to do as much as they are with the resources as limited as they are. Mm-hmm. No, it's been 
I mean, the resilience of our healthcare providers and clinic staff and just the healthcare community as a whole has been really phenomenal. And I hope that we honor all of the work and stress and trauma that they're enduring in the future by providing them better resources and systems to, you know, do the work of saving people's lives and doing no harm and helping people be healthy and helping people have access to other opportunity through that healthy, um, you know, through that support and through having authentic and proactive healthcare access. And that's one of the things that worries me about this, that at the end of all this, are we going to give them the adult equivalent of a pizza party instead of learning from this and actually giving them the resources they need to do their jobs? Yeah, I that, that definitely concerns me as well. Is, yeah, on the other side of this, how much do people, per your point, get kind of like a participation trophy? Um, and, we'll, and we'll also have to see what this looks like. Uh, I think this is also reframed with people go into um, the healthcare field, what, you know, being a doctor, a nurse, a medical assistant, whoever, um, the level of risk that we now have to acknowledge they're assuming and that potentially if we really want to recruit and continue to have people go through those programs, get licensed and credentialed, and then participate and serve community, they might themselves demand a lot more to do that. Now seeing what the real risk is when you're, you know, putting your own life on the line to serve others. It's one of those things where I think if it – again, because we are in a presidential election year, and so one of my hopes is if the amount of time this is going to take before we return to quote-unquote normal, which I hope quote-unquote normal changes as a result of this, like people are going to be already engaged in – you know, election years always sort of bring out the people who are trying to drastically change a very large – inherently hard, inherently hard to change system. And I hope this is kind of one of those things where it just weirdly times up where people aren't going to just want to take a vacation after this. They're going to want to get involved and, you know, work on these problems. Cause again, the numbers keep showing that the people who are getting hit by this the most are minority groups who always get hit the worst by problems that come up in society. You know, the, the infection and death rate amongst African-Americans and Latinx people is much higher than, than white people. And why is that? We know why, but let's we have to say it out loud sometimes. And the fact that there are, there are people who are undocumented immigrants who now have documents from the Department of Homeland Security saying that they are essential to America's economy. Like, are we going to talk about that <laughs> when this is done? Well, and that's what actually I think one of my giving me hope things along these lines right now that's coming from this Facebook group, right? Because when Nate and I made that Facebook group, we thought maybe we'd have 500 people and went to, you know, put made that group at eight o'clock and then we're like, all right, went to bed, both woke up the next day to 10,000 people being in there. Halfway through the day, it was 20,000. And then now it's, you know, 54,000 and it's been a little over two and a half weeks or so. And What's been amazing to me, because a lot of the people who are in it, who are taking action and learning to engage with their elected officials, um, reach out to media, all these different, you know, 
civic engagement and organizing activism things. It's not the same group largely that was, you know, maybe part of the teacher strike or some of those other Oklahoma moments. These are a lot of people who this might be their very first time being engaged in this way. And it's been amazing to watch as people share resources or here's how you contact this person or let me draft a letter for you. And seeing all of those skill sets get flexed for people who hadn't previously been engaged, kind of per your point, they may not have been proximal to um things as much or felt personally affected, especially as we acknowledge that marginalized groups, especially um, communities of color are often that, um, you know, canary to like the coal mine where um, I think this is a Benjamin Jealous quote where he talked about you're either the um, canary or minor, but you can't be neither, right? Something that impacts one community eventually will impact other communities mm. too. And we should listen to them when they're crying out in the first place. Um And I think this is just like this one crystallizing moment where it's so clear, hey, look, this does affect everyone. It's undeniable that it's a problem. And then you're seeing people who have never previously been engaged suddenly getting really engaged because it is really personal to them. And now that they are, you know, staying informed and looking at the news this much, learned who their state legislators are and know their phone numbers by heart, you know, all of those things. I'm really hopeful because that knowledge doesn't just disappear. And the next time something, you know, makes somebody mad or they perceive it as an injustice, now they know how to do all of that from engaging just in this moment. Well, and uh, that just uh, brings up kind of the, the next point of where we kind of start to wrap things up usually with is how can people become involved if they're not already? And if they are involved, how can they do more? Oh, wow. I, and this is a really tough, I will just say it's been... As someone who um, has an agitate, agitate, agitate Frederick Douglass quote tattoo on their arm, um, it's been really, in some ways, challenging to agitate and organize in this space right now because most of our traditional tactics for escalating around an issue aren't available to us, right? We're not all going to show up at the Capitol. We're not going to do a sit-in. There's just a lot of the things that you would do as your next step to really drive change aren't immediately available. Um, Well, one, if people want to get involved with the Save Our State effort, which is focusing on um, having our state issue a statewide shelter-in-place or stay-at-home order, um, clarifying essential businesses, and also not reopening too soon, not rolling back the steps that we have had and that communities have taken that are working. If someone wants to get involved, they just have to find the Facebook group. It's Save Our State calling on Governor Stitt to act now. Um, and if they're already involved in taking action, which we post action steps in the group, one of the biggest things that we've been advised that people can do, and this is something that does take a little more of a lift, um, especially if people are, you know, working right now and just stressed, but we've heard that one of the best things people can do is get opinion pieces published in local Oklahoma newspapers. That's actually like a need that's concretely real right now. Definitely people have to maintain the pressure and keep tweeting and calling and emailing the governor and their state representatives, both you know, federal and on the state level, like legislators. Um, but we also know that especially people's perspectives and their personal stories can make a huge, huge difference. And especially if it's coming out um, through local media um, and really helps people see that, hey, Oklahomans, rural, urban, um, regardless of ideology, political party, a lot of other things, they want to see more. That can be hugely impactful and a really great way to do that is through opinion pieces and finding ways to really share your personal perspective and story about why this is necessary and matters so much to you. 
That's really interesting. I'd never thought of that as as an avenue people could use to really speak out, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, and I, yeah. in some ways, hadn't, we have definitely been seeking um, national press, and we actually had someone who um, was affiliated with The Federalist, which, you know, is a fairly conservative publication, um, advise us um, that, you know, in considering your context, the most impactful thing you could do is this is Oklahoma, you know, people in Oklahoma were, were proud of being Oklahomans and that, you know, we have a certain, hey, you wouldn't understand, you're not from my community, you're in my state. And this person from the Federalist, right, who, again, that's more national and conservative publication was just like, really, you should just focus on local papers and getting stories elevated that way. And upon hearing that, we realized that's a really, really good point and a really good idea. We definitely need more people to um, kind of flex their voice and story in that way, especially if they're in rural communities who we know is um, one extra at risk in, for suffering right now when it comes to being under-resourced with lack of access to healthcare, And then two is also um, a lot of times what we're hearing is the excuse from the governor for not taking more action going, Hey, rural communities don't want this. And so he needs to know that they do. Talk about a blind spot of uh, people, our age newspapers, um, <laughs> physical newspapers. So the way Laura, I want to thank you for um, you know joining us. I know that you are immensely busy uh, because I see you on Facebook being immensely busy. And, <laughs> uh, but the way we normally if we were doing interviews in person, mm-hmm. uh, you would be you would be in our studio uh, in our in my, my incredibly nerdy office. And normally we would ask you like to pick out something that calls to you or that you were curious about. Um, but because uh, we've had a multitude of Facebook conversations about nerdy things, I know you already know lots of nerdy things. So the the game we've been playing so far with our remote guests is name a nerd IP, and I will tell you whether I have something of it or not. Ooh. Oh my gosh. So many good options. Mm. I mean, I should say that you posted a picture of a Star Trek D space nine kite that you once had. <laughs> so we're, we're already besties. And, uh, cause I didn't even know that I didn't know that kite existed and now I want it. So oh <laughs> that was a good day. Um, flying Star Trek themed kites on the national mall. Um, okay. What about, I mean, this is just like one of my favorite categories of gaming that I've been thinking a lot of right now. Civilization. The civ- oh, I think, okay. Do I, I, I went through a Civ phase. I feel like I have a copy of one of the Civ games somewhere. I'll have to track that down. And if I don't, I will post a picture of me looking really sad. You so. should. <laughs> um, because Civ is one of the best games ever, and I could play it for literally hours of my life. Just thinking about how civilizations rise and fall is, of course, on top of mind right now. But also, yeah. a quick fun fact, if you've never seen this Reddit thread, New Year's Day, I want to say it was 2012 or 13, probably 12, there was a spectacular thread on Reddit of someone who had been playing a Civ 2 game for like a decade and was totally stuck. And the world was like this, like, you know, just total biohazard wasteland. And it was super. <laughs> oh, I will. I will. Uh, I will find that article. I think I found it. But nope, that's that's the Sims. Nope. Don't want that. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. No. Stay away. Yeah. No. Uh, Sims, just Sims. Excellent. Yeah. I've been. Yeah. We've been playing a lot of online Catan. Uh, amongst our group of friends, which has been fun. Nice. Um, but for some reason, the limit's only four people, which, uh, come on, uh, come on, poor tiny Catan company on Steam, like, get together. 
<laughs> they, they've been they've been really overwhelmed and apologizing constantly. Oh, I, I found the Reddit thread. I found it. It's so I'll put it in the show notes. It, this sounds can, amazing. I think you should maybe take a screen cap of that and yeah. just put it up on the wall and take a picture of it. I, I will do that. Yeah. I will do that. <laughs> the ice caps. Uh, real quick, uh, just I want to read one paragraph from this, which is that the ice caps have melted over twenty times somehow. Due primarily to many nuclear wars. As a result, every inch of land in the world that isn't a mountain is inundated swampland, useless to farming, <laughs> many of which is irritated anyway. <laughs> That's amazing. All right. Right? That's impressive. Literally, All right. well, my geekiest choice is that specific Reddit thread about that specific edition of Civ. That is, that is amazing. There is, there is nothing nerdier than ultra specific nerdy. That's right. So. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, ultra specific nerdy about an ultra specific nerdy thing on an ultra specific nerdy site from seven years ago. Yeah, yep. I've been on Reddit yep. since like two thousand eight, so that lets you know a lot about me as a human, and I'm not proud. Yeah. You can't see what I'm doing, but I'm lifting the nerd crown off of my head, mm. and I'm symbolically putting it on your head. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's probably deserved based on what I just shared. <laughs> yeah, we, we 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 give praise to our new queen. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you all found that conversation as fascinating uh, as Chris and I did. Enjoyment isn't probably the right word to say in this particular time, but. I hope that it gave you some new information and places to go if you're looking for more. And we hope again to remotely see you in a couple of weeks. Stay safe out there, everybody. Wash your hands. And remember, get it done, Telsa. Telsa.